It is Meet Kevin Report uh, number 99. We are one away from 100, and today we're going to cover, well, uh, catalysts for the next coming weeks. We're going to talk about, uh, we'll talk uh, the stock market, obviously, the Fed, uh, we'll talk some commercial real estate because that seems to be maddening. Uh, we'll touch on what happened this uh, weekend with OPEC. Finally, after weeks of this complaining that OPEC was going to raise uh, uh, prices by essentially cutting production, it's here, and boy, the oil market doesn't really care. It's up uh, measly 2%, 1.8-ish percent, uh, when uh, last time we had about a 5% rally in oil. So really stuck in the mud there on oil, but we'll touch on that a little more. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we'll uh, we'll get into some projections for what 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 is going on. Are we getting a soft landing? Are we getting a hard landing? Uh, what what? Why is Morgan Stanley bearish? And how bearish is bearish even more these days? Because there's so many bears, which is fine. It's it's okay to be a bear, but the the bearish arguments used to be the market's going to crash by fifty percent. Well, what do the bears think now? How how low? Is the market really going to go now? What's what's the new percent that the bears are using to say, watch out, a big crash is coming? Well, we'll talk about all of that uh, in today's Meet Kevin Report. Uh, so first, uh, I'd like to start just by checking in. I, they had a decent discussion going on on Bloomberg, but now they're done with that. Uh, but actually, it, it, it was not even really economy-related. CNBC is on commercial, fine. So we'll go start with something else then. Uh, I think actually where I really want to start, uh, because there are quite a few things I want to touch on. One thing I really want to touch on is Twitter. So I want to give an update on Twitter, because apparently the New York Times is uh, doing a good little bash-a-doodle on, uh, uh, once again, on Twitter. And uh, Elon Musk isn't the biggest fan of the New York Times. In fact, a lot of people aren't the biggest fan of the New York Times. Uh, I hate to say it, but I actually think some of their information is still very good. Uh, now, I know then, then people are like, that's it, you must be a flaming liberal if you think that about the New York Times. I'm like, well, they, they're still journalists, and they still do at least some degree of research. So, at the very least, let's, let's go in with as unbiased of an opinion as we can about uh, Twitter and uh, see what Elon is up to. And is it going to mean he's going to have to sell some uh, Tesla stock? Or are we in the clear? Uh, well, the headline should uh, crush that, uh, that the impression that he might not have to sell Tesla stack pretty quickly. Twitter's U.S. ad sales plunge 59% as woes continue. This is according to internal forecasts, and uh, they're going to go through some of the actual numbers here. But keep in mind what this potentially means as a Tesla owner. It's a potential risk that, hey, is Elon going to have to go back and sell more Tesla? Now, he's argued that he sold enough to sell for all of 2023, to float 2023, maybe even into 2024. But if Twitter revenue doesn't turn around, he's going to end up having to, well, probably continue to fund the business somehow, and that could be by selling shares in another company. Some people are like, maybe he'll sell shares of Starlink, and I think the answer to that is unlikely that Starlink will have enough liquidity for this. So uh, Tesla will still be, be that door that he ends up having to knock on. Uh, now, in order to try to support the mission, of course, on my Twitter page, uh, I now pay $1,400 a month to tweet and have this beautiful yellow checkmark uh, and a checkmark for myself and our, and our 
um, our team members just to support the cause of, of Twitter not going bankrupt here. All right, anyway. So Elon Musk reportedly said Twitter's advertising business was on the upswing. Almost all advertisers have come back, he asserted. And, and Elon does have an interesting way of being able to kind of see the positive and things. Just, I, I do too, okay? I see the positive and things. But Elon's got a unique knack for talking about how great something is when it's not great at all. <laughs> so we've seen this with Tesla. But let's keep going. <laughs> remember, remember January? Demand is very robust. There's no shortage of demand. Five price cuts later on the cars. Come on, man. Come on. Now, Tesla did just get the full $7,500 tax credit for their Model 3s. That, I have to say, was impressive and almost ingenious. I was doing a little bit of research on this, and it looks like Tesla might have actually been taking an approach to declare that the average number of batteries they make is actually enough to qualify their entire fleet for the $7,500 tax credit. Now, the R and R and the S, the one who's going to pay you this tax credit, has not updated their website yet to indicate that this is true. But the Tesla website certainly does. So clearly they think they have enough of a, uh, a legal argument to make the claim that $7,500 is yours. P.S., I think you don't need more dudes on the front page of Tesla showing how you could launch the car. You got to turn this into more of the family car. You got you got to get the ladies involved. Just my take. Tesla, like Tesla's demo is 25 to 45 year old dudes. They got that on lock. We we got we got to expand that. Just my take. You know, I, I, I keep talking about advertising with, with Tesla and, and such. And here we go, talking about Twitter advertising. And uh, I'm just going to keep throwing out my opinions. So that way, in the event that the gods are listening, maybe they can hear the criticisms through through the fog of, you know, Twitter in this case. <laughs> and, uh, and wake up! Uh, anyway, okay. So almost all advertisers have come back, as uh, Elon Musk had uh, suggested. But uh, actually, according to the New York Times, uh, revenue from the five weeks from April 1 to the first week of May was $88 million, or down 59% from a year earlier, according to an in internal presentation obtained by the Times. So in other words, revenue is actually down 59% from the time that Twitter was actually still owned by Twitter. That's quite a big decline. The company has regularly fallen short of its U.S. sales projections, sometimes by as much as 30%. And the performance is unlikely to improve anytime soon. I remember there was a period where Disney was freaking out because uh, some, like, a troll account ended up getting a yellow check mark and impersonated Disney and then they were posting hate and all this. Uh, like some companies are a little fussy about how the verification process has gone. And to some extent, there's some legitimacy in how the verification process has gone a little awry. But uh, I, I, I do believe they're trying their best. Uh, what, what I somewhat, actually I would say mostly disagree with is the following here. Twitter's ad staff is concerned that advertisers may be spooked by a rise in hate speech, pornography, as well as ads featuring gambling, marijuana products, and other less desirable products to have your, well, your product featured near. I personally haven't seen any of those three or four things 
hate speech, uh, pornography, marijuana products, gambling products on, on Twitter. That's not to say it doesn't exist. Maybe anecdotal evidence here isn't great. So let's take a look at what the New York Times is referencing. And the New York Times, ah, see, this is an old vid, the New York, or an old, old piece. The New York Times is actually referencing this rise in hate speech as uh, December 2nd, a, a December 2nd piece. And this was shortly, about six weeks after Elon Musk took over. And there have been counter studies to this New York Times piece suggesting that maybe the New York Times uh, might be miscounting or, or the research body, I think it was a university that ended up putting this together, might be miscounting uh, how uh, they're actually evaluating how many hate speech tweets are rising. Because to some extent, if you have potentially, I'm just gonna make an example here. I'm not saying this is potentially how the error was in, in the ways, but in, on one hand, you can have hate speech that legitimately bashes a group of individuals on Twitter and it actually goes viral. It gets a lot of engagement. And then on the other hand, you could have potentially a bot farm that posts, you know, 100,000 tweets and they get zero engagement because it's just a bot farm. And then all those 100,000 tweets are hate speech. So now you've got 100,000 tweets that are hate speech, but they get zero engagement versus like a real hate speech that actually goes viral that maybe gets a million views, right? And it's just one tweet. So I do think there's potentially a risk in measuring hate speech by... Uh, by, by the the amount of uh, time that uh, hate speech shows up on Twitter, because if you use a bot, like uh, like a research tool or a search tool, and then you're counting no engagement tweets, then you're potentially really skewing data. Uh, so so I'd like to see the controls of some of these uh, you know rise in hate speech arguments because I I don't buy that rise in hate speech argument. However, the New York Times' branding of Twitter as experiencing a rise in hate speech is unfortunately probably, um, well, turning into what the New York Times is good at and at reiterating, which is that, oh, uh, sure, their sales must now be going down because obviously there's a rise in hate speech. I, it's kind of frustrating because it's like, if this was flawed and now everything afterwards is being blamed on this, you almost kind of do make it seem like to advertisers that, oh no, there's a rise in hate speech on the platform. A little bit of a problem. We've got this former NBC Universal executive who's starting work today. Uh, obviously, a lot of people wishing her good luck, especially since another head of uh, ad safety just quit this weekend. 90% uh, of the company's revenue has previously come from ads. Obviously, Elon Musk has been trying to prop that up by charging for uh, the blue service so you can get verified, the check mark or the yellow check mark. If you're an idiot, you pay for that. Oops. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, it'll be interesting to see how this evolves. When it comes to valuation, we knew that Twitter was substantially an overvalued purchase back when Elon bought it. We knew that. We talked about it. We said it. Uh, we analyzed it. We went through it. So now the expectations are that the company's worth about 20 bill versus 44. That's about a 55% decline. However, internally, I guess fidelity is marking them all the way down to 15 from 44. That's a decline of about 66%. I'm only disappointed that it's not a decline of 69%. Now, 
Uh, here are some comments like, Twitter feels increasingly unpredictable and chaotic. And personally, I just don't see that. Uh, I, I don't see it that horrible, but okay. Some of the biggest advertisers, including Apple, Amazon, and Disney, have been spending less on the platform than last year. But I also feel like everybody's been spending less on advertising. Large specialized banner ads on Twitter's trends page, which can cost about $500,000 for 24 hours. <laughs> That's a lot of money. Are almost always bought by large brands to promote events, shows, or movies. But lately, they've been going unfilled. Ooh. Six ad agency executives who've worked with Twitter said their clients continue to limit spending on their platform. But you have to wonder, how much of limited ad spending is actually due to the economy? They cited confusion over Musk's changes of service, inconsistent support from Twitter, and concerns about the persistent presence of misleading and toxic content on the platform. I quite frankly, honestly believe that is a great excuse in a bad economy. Uh, okay, all right, the rise of AI images of an image that showed an explosion near the Pentagon. Okay, we already know people are using deep fakes to do silly things. <laughs> like, that's gonna be true on every platform. I get what, I guess all of a sudden people are gonna stop advertising on Reddit too, because the memes are doing too well. I, I know it's memes, but you know, yeah. Go, tell me which interview we heard the memes in. <laughs> anyway, uh, actually it'll relate to Elon. Anyway, so uh, some marketers are returning to the platform. Great, fantastic. But anyway, hey, this was him in uh, China, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so, so the point is, yes, there isn't necessarily the absolute best growth at Twitter, and that could create some longer-term potential red flags for when and if Elon Musk is going to need to sell again. Are we highly concerned that this is a really big near-term catalyst? Well, maybe. And that's why you could always get life insurance in as little as five minutes by going to metkevin.com slash life, paid promotion. Or the other paid promotion, which is get get 12 free stocks with Weeble by going to metkevin.com slash Weeble. Actually, it's metkevin.com slash free. Anyway, it's one of those. Uh, but yeah, look, at some point there is a risk Elon might have to sell uh, Tesla shares again. Do I think that's coming in 2023? Unlikely. Uh, do I think that that's really going to affect the stock at this point? Uh, not necessarily, mostly because I think Tesla stock is going to be one of the recipients of the Nike swoosh recovery. Uh, and uh, what's crazy about Tesla is not only does Tesla need to Nike swoosh along with the broader market. Here's the, the uh, Nike stock chart on uh, a weekly basis right now. Not only do we actually need to make this a Nike swoosh, which means you have a sharp down and then a long up to actually turn this into a swoosh, but we'll probably have to break these all-time highs of 414 because Tesla's going to have to start pricing in, or the market's going to have to start pricing in, some of the latest and greatest of Tesla, which would be, hey, it ended up surviving this recession or whatever the heck it is we're going through, period. Hey, now you've got Project Highland, which could be a sub $30,000 Model 3, which I've regularly contended that the best $25,000 car would just be the Model 3, some kind of refresh of the Model 3. So we'll see what happens there. Then you've got the Cybertruck. Obviously, we'd like to see some more ramping of the, uh, well, the Cybertruck in 2024 uh, and the uh, Semi. 
And of course, that doesn't price in really the how good FSD is getting full self-driving uh, or uh, any any of the other uh, mega pack expansions that we've recently been seeing as well as the ramps of other uh, factories. That's not to say Tesla's not going to experience a big load of cash burn though. Remember at the shareholder meeting when I'm patting myself on the back here, I convinced Elon to advertise. Um, haven't seen the implication of implications of uh, advertising yet. But on top of that, remember that Elon suggested the next 12 months could be quite difficult for Tesla. I believe one of the risk factors for that is actually cash burn. I, I really think it's going to be quite incredibly expensive for Tesla to manufacture, uh, well, I shouldn't say manufacture because that implies ramped, for Tesla to create the manufacturing facilities that they're building, whether that's Northeast Mexico, reinvestments into a Chinese expansion or Shanghai expansion, uh, finishing the ramp at Berlin and Austin, the uh, Megapack factory. These are going to be extremely expensive endeavors. And so the, the beautiful free cash flow that Tesla had previously enjoyed, I don't think will exist anymore. I, I'm, I'm expecting negative free cash flow. And I expect Tesla's cash to actually go from you know, as, as some people have put it, oh my gosh, Tesla has so much cash. They got over 20, you know, 19, 20 billion dollars of cash. I expect that to actually go down pretty quickly. Uh, and, and now uh, keep in mind that as we've reviewed the balance sheet of Tesla previously in the last, you know, say six months to nine months, we've also contended that most of their extra balance sheet money, their extra cash is quite frankly just payables or, or is offset by bills that they need to pay. Again, that's not bad, especially if you're a free cash flowing company. But unfortunately, I, I do think there will be a risk that uh, we're going to go to negative cash flow. But that's okay because Tesla doesn't have any debt. And I do think that Tesla will be able to um, raise enough cash either through financing or even I know, I know, buckle up, but yeah, there could be a stock offering in 2023, especially as the price goes up. I would guess that if Tesla stock ended up knocking on the door of 300 bucks again, might see an offering, uh, an offering of, I would probably go for maybe a 10 billy offering at 300 bucks. That, uh, just to give you an idea of how horrible that could be for the impact of the stock, I'm being facetious because everybody seems to think that an offering is so horrible. Remember, folks, the point of the stock market, okay? The point of the stock market uh, is to raise capital. Okay, so uh, 300 bucks would put them right about at a trillion again. That would be a 1% shift in, in my, like, in other words, with them raising $10 billion at a $1 trillion valuation is literally selling just one extra percent. It's really not that big of a deal. So point being, am I really worried about Tesla stock in the near term? Do I look worried? No, I'm, I'm obviously not worried. Uh, I, I, I think the Twitter thing, Elon should be Gucci until the end of the year, uh, probably early next year. Tesla's money, yeah, there'll probably be a raise. If that free cash flow sector goes negative, there'll probably be a raise. I mean, let's look at it really quick. So here was Q1. What was Q1? So net cash from operating activities was 2.5. We only had about 400 millis here of free cash flow. 
I expect that's going to go negative, flat or negative. Flat would be okay, because if they could keep investing two billies into the factories and it doesn't go negative, that's great. Now you don't have to raise money. But let's say it goes negative to the tune of 500 millies a quarter. Honestly, even negative a billy a quarter. That's four billies raising $10 billion gives you another two and a half years of, of, of basically investment money for your plants and factories and whatever else. Uh, or if you spend twice as much, it gives you another, say, year and a half, roughly, year and a quarter. Uh, it, and then when you look at the balance sheet, here's their balance sheet. You know, people seem very convinced that, oh, but Kevin, look, Tesla had 22.4 billies in cash. It's so wonderful. Yeah, I, I agree with you. They've got lots of cash. That's fantastic. But when we go over here and we look at the bills that we got to pay, right? Let's just take the top two over here. Look at that. That's payables and accrued liabilities. 15.9 billy plus 7.3 already puts you at 23.2 billies of bills you got to pay. Uh, and uh, we've got some long-term liabilities in here. Uh, I mean, virtually nothing. Long-term liabilities appear to be this line right here. And, oh, it's look at that. It's actually sneaking up. Look how it's been rising, actually. Oh, interesting. I didn't even notice this. This has been sneaking up on me. Look at this other long-term liabilities right here. 3.8, 3.9, 4.3, 5.3, almost 6 billies right here. So we got 6 billies of, of longer-term debt here. Uh, and then the uh, deferred revenue, debt, current liabilities, current portion of debt. Current portion of debt is probably, what is that, another 1.4 over there. So you add this all together, not considering deferred revenue or um, the uh, current portion of leases. It's generally how I do my, I, I do my own balance sheet math in a unique way. I understand that. But I, you do it as more of a, a meet Kevin asset test. So we got a 30.6-ish in bills and, and debts here, right? And uh, offset that by about 22 foreign cash. You know, that's great. But you don't really have a lot of cash left. Now, sure, you do have inventory and receivables. But let's go ahead and drop that inventory uh, in value by about 10%. So that's going to bring us to about 13 billies. 13 billies plus about 3 in accounts receivable. Throw that in. What do we got? You got another about 16 in potential here. What does that leave you with? Well, if you offset all of this, you're left with about eight bill. That's good, but now you're you're really starting to run that eight billies down. You start running that eight billy down at the tune of say three billies a quarter. You're out of you're out of money after two and a half quarters. So you got about two and a half quarters. Uh, at a break even on free cash flow, if uh, if if you keep having to you know spend lots of money uh, on these factories, so so I do think that uh, that aligns with roughly somewhere like a December January uh, money raise. Hopefully, when Tesla's around, you know somewhere around maybe a trillion bucks in valuation, somewhere around three hundred dollars a share. Do keep in mind, though, as we did with the math, them raising 10 billy isn't the end of the world. It, it is literally 1% of the market cap. Because it might have a larger impact to float depending on how they raise, it, you know, it could move a little bit more than that. But but it's okay. Like, Tesla's going to get through this. I'm, I'm not worried about uh, the sale of more stocks. I would be more worried about Elon selling 
than I would be about Tesla raising money. Uh, but then again, you know, how much more is Elon going to have to add? What, another three billy or something like that? That'd be one third of what the company itself needs to raise, another third of a percent. It shouldn't be a big deal, but it, the problem is it just eats up the order book. Right? And, and, and that's where it kind of hurts a little bit. Uh, and I think that's why we've seen this crazy ride with Tesla. So, <laughs> long and short of it, there's, uh, there's kind of my wide breakdown of all of this Tesla madness. Now, the good news about all this madness with Tesla and Twitter is you can still check out those programs linked down below on Building Your Wealth because guess what? You can always check them out. In fact, they're really phenomenal programs. Uh, we've got the AI course releasing tomorrow at 6 p.m. It's actually free for all the existing members of the How to Make More Money group. We've got the investing group, real estate, zero to millionaire, stocks and psychology of money, you name it. These AI lectures, though, be sick. They're gonna be lit. I mean, just really, really good. So I'm very excited. did it. <laughs> All right. So let's see what Squawky's here talking about. So far, it looks like they're talking about something boring. Exactly. Less and that's expected to be a five to $10 billion potential liability cost as well for the company. Oh God. I mean, wow. Mesothelioma wow. is still, you know, the airwaves constantly. See that? That was a long time ago. Is this the next frontier? Asbestos yeah, is, is what they compare to, actually. Is this the next yes. frontier for the, for the trial, for the uh, class action? Uh, lawsuit. It, it certainly could be. Right now, the focus is on the chemical manufacturers, but what about all the companies and That's industries I mean. that are using PFAS? Oh, they're licking their chops. Oh my God, we can't. We're gonna have fewer. Uh, all right, I, I I don't really care about this discussion. Let's go find something. Let's see what Bloomberg's up to. What? What is Bloomberg up to? Let's find out. Let's see. In the office three days a week, you have more time uh, to travel. Nothing. I also, I also Nothing. They're, they're doing the break music. People take will no longer take for granted their ability to travel and experience. Executives in the travel and leisure uh, experience sector have been incredibly happy recently. That was Scott Kirby, United Airlines CEO, speaking with Guy Johnson over in Istanbul at the IATA general meeting. Everyone is a bull there. Also, everyone is a bull when you look beyond at the other related industries, including lodging. With me today is Peter Shear of Academy Securities. Tom and John both off today. We were just talking about how you've been traveling a lot more and that people want to see you. That hasn't faded, has it? No, not at all. So I think I'm traveling for two or three days a week for the next four to five weeks. And I like that. We go to see clients. Some's by train, some's driving, definitely flying. But we're out on the road and I love it. Clients like it. And basically, the person sitting next to you is just starting to smile bigger and bigger as you speak, saying, all right, this is what I like to hear. It's Tony Capuano, president and CEO of Marriott International. Things have been pretty upbeat. Does it continue or does it sort of... This should be interesting, actually. Pushing back against the cost. I don't think so. I mean, we what we've really seen the last couple of years is the resilience of travel, and we've seen it across segments and across borders. Uh, when we reported earnings at the end of the first quarter, 
we saw recovery across every segment. Of course, leisure continued to be strong. It was the leisure segment that brought us out of the, the pandemic. But group has been remarkably strong. In fact, when we look at the remaining three quarters of the year, we're up 26% year over year in group revenue. And business transient, many had... Uh, predicted sort of the demise of business travel, but you made yeah. the point. Increasingly, folks are recognizing or reminding themselves of the power of getting in front of their clients, the importance yes. of immersing new employees in their company culture. And as a result, we're seeing steady quarter over quarter improvement in business transient demand as well. Is it everywhere for business or places like, say, San Francisco, not seeing any kind of revival Oof. because of some of the outflow there? Well, certainly markets like San Francisco are seeing slower recovery. But even there, I was listening during the break to Scott Kirby's comments, this, this phenomenon of blended trip purpose, I think serves markets like San Francisco really well. This idea that through the pandemic, more and more travelers learned they can work from almost anywhere, where we really saw this in the data. Dude, nobody is vacationing in San Francisco. I'm sorry, San Francisco sucks week that recovered most rapidly were Sunday and Thursday, which pre-pandemic were really shoulder days. And what that tells us is with increasing frequency is business and group travelers are tacking on a couple leisure days pre and or post trip. And that really has the potential to help markets, even like San Francisco, which have some leisure no. appeal. Peter, I see you not. No, there's no leisure appeal in San Francisco whatsoever. I will have to put together a video, but let me just tell you, I went there, I took video while I was there. Like, it feels like 60% of that city is just closed for business, like corner stores, major intersections. It's scary. Somewhere for four nights instead of just two nights or these day trips. So uh, we try and do as much of that. I think it makes perfect sense. And that was interesting about the Sundays and Thursdays. Well, but how much are you able to increase pricing then? based on the cost all in We're of not. traveling, which has gotten incredibly Yeah, so high. I mean, We're compression not. drives pricing. And so what we see is in leisure destinations and some of the urban destinations that have a strong leisure orientation, like New York, we see a lot of compression. And as a result of that compression, we see strong pricing power. In a market wow. like a Chicago or a San Francisco, where there's less compression, the pricing power is not as strong. Are there markets that you're seeing expand much more dramatically? I know that we were talking about, for example, in Florida, how much hotel prices, and I know experience uh, from experience that when I've tried to go visit. Compression is a compression of supply. Experience when it comes to the cost of it. I'm wondering, though, is that continuing, or are you starting to see leveling off there? You're seeing a bit of leveling off, but to the benefit of some of the international destinations. So just this morning, I was reading some statistics. If you look at... Um, outbound U.S. to Europe uh, airline bookings for the summer, they're up nearly 50% year over year. Yeah. And what that suggests is a lot of U.S. travelers who might have gone to destinations like South Florida or Southern California last summer, with increasing frequency, they're going to France and Italy and Greece. And so that's maybe eliminating a little of that compression pressure in South Florida, which will moderate pricing a bit. How much are you trying to cater to the high end, which has been perhaps recovering even more? So luxury has been exceedingly strong, but we have a portfolio of 31 brands across multiple price tiers and price points. So uh, in the luxury tier, we continue to see pretty uh, strong pricing power. 
Um, but that's just one mm. tier that we operate in. In fact, just last month, we acquired a brand called City Express, which signaled our entry into mid-scale for the first time, which is now the lowest price tier that we operate in. Peter, I'm wondering from your perspective, if you've been seeing a drop off with respect to the housekeeping, some of the other amenities around uh, the experience of, of staying. I have not, actually. I've really enjoyed it. I think we'll continue. I had a great trip down in Argentina. We did stay at one of your hotels Thank as well you. as other places. <laughs> oh, um, man. You but, did you, like, <laughs> pay him off before? I think this is actually a very interesting discussion because, I mean, it's true. People are still spending on travel. It's really incredible. And uh, this talk about, oh, it's just pent up. It just keeps going and going and go. people just keep traveling. It's nutty. Um, Ch mainland China has fully recovered. Um, uh, but again, driven largely by domestic Chinese travel. Uh, international uh, air, uh, airline seats into mainland China are only about 40% recovered to where they were wow. pre-pandemic. Uh, but the balance of Asia Pacific, particularly markets like Japan, uh, Thailand, are booming right now. In mm. fact, uh, I was looking at some statistics. Somebody asked me a question about what are the most popular summer destinations. And the list that I looked at, some of the destinations you would expect, Italy, France, Greece, but Japan was in the top five. Are there any markets you're wow. getting out of? No, well, we, we uh, suspended all our operations in Russia a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, but other oh. than extreme circumstances like that, no. We operate in 138 countries today. And in our 500,000-room pipeline, there are another 20 new countries. To build on Peter's question, there is this issue of doing business in China. And we talk to every executive about how complicated that is as an American company going into uh, the biggest rival right now economically. How much can you operate freely there? How much conviction do you have in uh, the fact that the Chinese Communist Party will allow you to do your business? So our business model, I think, serves us well there. We have 8,500 hotels globally. We only own 20 of those physical assets. So our business model is one of principally managing and franchising hotels. Of the roughly 500 hotels we have in China today, almost the entirety of that portfolio is owned by Chinese companies. And so I think that serves us well, even against the backdrop of some of the complexities of doing business. Before we let you go, how much longer can this trend of YOLO and let's travel around the world really last? I, you know, I don't see it ending anytime no soon. I think there was pre-pandemic a shift away from consumption of hard goods towards investment and experiences. And if anything, the pandemic served as an accelerant and, and caused that, that trend to spread across generations. Tony Capuano of Marriott. Thank you so much for being with My us. Pleasure. Really appreciate Great it. Great to be back. Uh, and Peter, I will say that this is something that I've experienced. I don't know about for you with your children, but my children are much more focused on traveling than they are physical goods as well. I will just say, I mean, maybe it's just, you know, them, but. Yeah, my daughter. Dude, l lucky you. <laughs> my kids are like, I don't want to travel, Dad. And I'm like, what? We can, though. And they're like, yeah, we don't want to travel. We just want to stay here. And I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it's fascinating to me. The, uh, on the on the edge, clearly there just doesn't seem to be this un uncertainty of individuals yet on travel. Now, there's some discussion that maybe this, uh, you know, repayment and student loans that's expected to rebegin or, uh, begin again in August uh, could drive some form of 
slowdown in spending. Uh, some folks think that could be as much as uh, one-tenth of one percent of GDP. But even when you look at it that way, it's like, eh, it's still pretty nominal. Some folks say that the student loan pause uh, would uh, would change uh, the savings rates by about 0.2%, but that's also really nominal. So surprisingly, not not huge impacts expected from the uh, uh, you know return to student loan payments, which uh, kind of uh, if you think about it, back in you know 2010 to 2019, people had to pay their student loans then, and the economy was still okay. And, uh, anyway, um, I, I don't know how much there is to really say about the OPEC uh, drama. We know that uh, OPEC announced another cut. Uh, the cut that we got ended up moving oil by. Uh, it's actually ticking up a little bit right now into into where the market's about to open. We're sitting at about 2.3 on WTI and 2.1 on Brent International at 77.7. Uh, okay, so uh, today is also Apple Day, so uh, it'll be fascinating to see in five hours Apple Day begins. Uh, Apple Day is expected to announce their VR uh, headset, their, their dive into virtual reality. Apparently, it's expected to have a detached battery pack and something that you can wear here and cable into it or maybe Bluetooth into it. I'm not sure. I think... The cable tethering, well, no, because if it's a detached battery pack, it's got to be cabled in. So you cable it in, wear it in your, put it in your pocket or something potentially, and uh, yeah, spend 3000 bucks, I guess, on some sort of VR slash AR tool. The one thing I'm excited about is this idea that you could potentially uh, look at or use it in such a way where the augmented reality actually is something that you could basically turn on and off. In uh, this, I think, is very interesting because much like the uh, watch, you know how it has, maybe you don't, I, I don't know if you'll be able to see. Yeah, see that little scrolly wheel right right here? Ah, it went out of focus like right when I touched it. Anyway, there's a little scrolly wheel. There it is, this little scrolly wheel. Imagine if you scroll it, you're like in VR, and then you scroll it the other way and you're in AR, augmented reality. That'd be kind of cool. I actually think that's a pretty brilliant idea where, you know, for me, the future of these reality headsets, at least for the next 10 years, is uh, augmented reality. You know, is this is this going to be a tool that I could put on and be more productive in my workplace? If I could be more productive in my workplace with this headset, it's going to be a business tool. And then all of a sudden, as soon as you call something a business tool, remember what that means. It means people can write it off. So just because it's $3,000 doesn't matter. If you can write it off, it's actually only like $1,500 to $1,800. Now you're talking about like iPad Pro level with a case of, of spending. Uh, iPad Pro with, with a case and a pen is like almost two grand. It's crazy. But anyway... Uh, now, now it potentially knocks on the door of a little bit more reasonableness if it could have function for for business. If, for example, it can make you more productive while you like personally, an idea of like my my dream for this headset would be that I could put it in my pocket. The pocket thing is really important because I want to be able to, like there's one thing in my life that really I haven't figured out how to optimize yet. 
And because I haven't figured out how to optimize it yet, I just don't really do it. And that's go to the gym. And it, what's frustrating is, and I know I have like problems. Everybody's got problems, but this is one of mine, okay? Don't make fun of me, okay? All right. I get anxiety when I go to the gym because I'm like, like you go do a bench press and you're like, come on, man. I could be researching right now. What is this? And I try to listen to other stuff, but the other, the other options that there are, aren't that great. And you listen to like uh, the, the uh, mainstream TV. It's the same thing on loop all day long. If, uh, you know, you, you, I, I don't know. I, maybe I just haven't found the right podcast or something. I, I don't know. But it's been frustrating. So for me, I end up not listening to anything where I try to listen to, to uh, the TV and it's terrible. Uh, so then I, I, I resort to music. Which, but usually I like listening to music when I'm actually doing something productive like researching or bookkeeping or whatever. So workout time is terrible for me. I don't know why. It just drives me nuts. So if this is a headset where maybe there'd be a way to like work while you're working out, that's where I think the opportunity is. How can you let people work while they're doing other things? Now, here's another extreme example. And I'm going to say extreme here because I don't want people to be like, oh, that's not safe, Kevin. But imagine you could, while you're driving, be wearing this headset and it's augmented reality, right? And you could just have like a Siri conversation with it over like your messages or something because it's like beaming it in front of you. I don't know, probably wouldn't be safe, but I have no idea. Maybe there's a way to make that safe. But the point is, this can't be like another quest, like the meta quest or whatever, where basically you put the sucker on in your living room and its purpose is for you to use while you're at home. Look, while I'm at home, I got Xbox, I got PlayStation, we got DDR, we got Rust on the computer, we got Age of Empires on the computer. I can do research, I got TV, I can also go outside and stop playing video games and go-kart or cyber-quad or nerf gun or whatever. I think this could be a game changer of a tool if it could fill in these odd times when maybe you're commuting on a bus or, you know, I, I, the car one's probably a little risky, but we'll see. Or, or even like you're, I don't know, on a plane or, or, or just places where like it's hard to be productive and it somehow it like has figured out, Apple's figured out how to make you productive in a new way. And if you could sell it to an audience under the guise of productivity, Apple wins. My take. So so we'll see what happens. Joanna Stern did a piece on it today. Uh, let's see what, what her take was. Uh, the release event is in five hours. It's at 10 a.m. And uh, Joanna Stern's piece on it uh, speculates on the following. She, uh, she thinks it'll cost... And, and usually the WSJ gets a good heads up on these things because the, Apple uses it to kind of like preview market reactions. Wall Street Journal believes it'll be about $3,000. Uh, many capabilities, which can include a FaceTime-like communication app. But see, that's not good enough. Like, honestly, I can't even remember the last time I used FaceTime. I think when FaceTime... I Actually, I remember when FaceTime came out. Okay? This this shows you how much of a, a, a like an Apple nerd uh, I feel like I am. But when the iPhone... I want to say it was the iPhone 4 came out. So it went iPhone 1 iPhone 3G, iPhone 4, 
The iPhone 4 had FaceTime, but guess what? When we got our phones, Lauren and I were in Santa Monica, we get our phones and we're like, oh, let's try FaceTiming each other. This is so cool. And then you try to do it. It's like, can't FaceTime over 3G, connect to Wi-Fi. And it's like, what's the point? <laughs> so anyway, uh, that was our first sort of intro to FaceTime. Uh, obviously, now today you can FaceTime anywhere, but but who actually FaceTimes anyone? Uh, I mean, family, maybe, I suppose. I like FaceTime audio. That's great because I have really bad service where I am. FaceTime audio is fantastic because when I see blue text, I just FaceTime audio people. But anyway, uh, let's go back to Joanna Stern's piece here. But by announcing the launch at its developer conference, uh, oh, a developer conference. If you're traveling to the developer conference and you're going to be around all the Apple crazy fans, make sure you also have that life insurance you can get in as little as five minutes by going to metkevin.com slash life. Uh, ooh, that's the wrong button. Uh, or by going to uh, uh, the link down below, uh, metkevin.com slash life. Sign up for life insurance in as little as five minutes. All right. It's clear, paid promotion. It's clear that Apple is hopping, uh, hoping rather third-party developers will figure out new new and interesting uses for the device. I don't know if that's such a great idea, but we'll see. Virtual reality developers are hoping Apple will reignite interest in the category that has been slowing down. All right, I, I don't know. While the new headset is likely to steal most of the attention, the company is planning a refresh on various hardware platforms, uh, maybe iPhone, iPad. I mean, the iPhone's usually its own event in September, so probably not iPhone, but maybe we'll see some news about the iPad and the watch and the Mac. Apple's new iPhone operating system, iOS 17, will include a number of new health features. Great. That's it? That's all they have on the headset? Uh, the new hardware, headset, tools for developers, the applications which may run a gamut from games to workplace apps are critical to the company's strategy. Fantastic. Uh, sales dropped of the meta. Unlikely to be available right away. Mass production isn't expected until the fall. Lame. Uh, first year estimates expected to be two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars. I or three hundred two hundred to three hundred thousand units. That's a lot more than two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I I'll put it this way. I'm optimistic, but I remain skeptical that it's going to be something actually functional. If they find something functional, though, uh, that the, the stock will perform very very well. I'm I'm confident of that. If they find something functional. But if there's not something functional that actually convinces a business use case here, I'm not very optimistic on uh, this this Apple headset. I, there's a risk of it just being another meta, uh, where where you know they're spending billions of dollars on Reality Labs and it's just not going anywhere. Now who knows? Maybe that'll end up being a great investment ten years from now, and we'll get Ready Player One World uh, in uh, IRL. But uh, we shall see. For now, let's go listen to what the Bears over at Morgan Stanley have to say. They would be more reluctant to take the money out of their uh, the River Sepo facility and buy the T-bills. So we think that the this this easy smooth transfer of money from the River Sepo into the T-bills is not going to be that that smooth. And there is a risk that a some of this is going to be a lot stickier. Um, and a stickiness of the of the River Sepo means that um, money will have to come from elsewhere. We think that would that would potentially mean uh, the reserves in the system, and that uh, ultimately amounts to um, uh, into, you know to withdrawal of liquidity in the system, and that is certainly very much on top of my mind. 
Yeah, Vichy, um, I think some, a question that continues to come up is this slow squeeze in lending standards and credit availability. And I think what I'm hearing you say is that really this is the plumbing that is going to just keep that trend moving. Do you expect this to really resolve over the next one or two quarters, or does this lay on top of the Fed, any potential Fed rate hikes? How does this move as we sort of look at the second half of the year? I think this is, uh, you know, we have seen some, uh, you know, tightening of lending standards that was from, you know, that's, you know, tightening of lending standards began late last year. And we saw, you know, even coming into the Q1, we saw some tightening of lending standards. But I think that largely reflects the the, the turmoil we saw, the, you know, in, in March, the, the incremental lending standard tightening that we saw in Q1 uh, in the senior loan officer survey. Um, that was really reflects the, the turmoil in March and really doesn't capture the incremental regulatory change that is going to be coming to the to the banks, particularly regional banks. So the the effect of the uh, the, the tighter monetary policy, the you know the much discussed uh, lagged effect of, uh, of of the more tighter monetary policy, layer on top of this high uh, Fed, you know the front end of the of the uh, of the curve, because of this feeble issuance and the need to be competitive with the reverse repo, uh, it hits at the same time that the liquidity pressures remain in the bank in the regional banking system. So you can see, look at the. The, the, the continued reliance on the bank term funding program. Yeah. I think we are at 97 billion now. So this continued reliance means the tension is there and um, and, and the front end. The All right. Honestly, this constant blah, blah, blah about the banking crisis and liquidity and the reverse repos, it's all such crap. Like, give me like... Give me some real, like, clickbait, please. Like, give me something good to talk about. Not this crap. It's such garbage. Uh, people are like, oh, but Kevin, this week the Treasury's going to have to sell a bunch of bonds. And the banks are going to have to take money out of reverse repos and buy it. Okay. Who cares? They got plenty of money to do it with. $2.1 trillion sitting around to go buy stuff with. $2.1 trillion in cash that banks have access to right now. These are massive institutions who use the reverse repo facility. People are worried about a lack of liquidity. What do you call this sack of cash? I, 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 <laughs> I don't know. The bears just, they have to have a bearish take. That's what it is. You know what? This is the perfect time to give you Morgan Stanley's bear piece. You ready for the bear piece? I'll give you Morgan Stanley's bear piece. And in this bear piece, you're gonna find out exactly how much Morgan Stanley thinks the market is actually going to fall by the end of the year. Brace for it, okay? You remember the days of like, you know, the headlines, like stock market to fall 50%, stock market to collapse 90%. Just wait for Morgan Stanley's updated bear thesis on just how bad things are going to get. All right, let's start with this piece. It's by Andrew Sheets. It's one heck of a last name. Anyway, our mid-year outlook, soft landing, hard choices. U.S. unemployment is the lowest since 68. Core inflation is higher than 83, while U.S. T-bills yield the most since Jan of 01. In other words, things is weird right now. 
we see global GDP, <laughs> GDP slowing to 2.9% this year. So this is all of Morgan Stanley. They see GDP slowing to 2.9% this year. Notice that's actually a positive number. They actually see the risk skewed to the downside, but their base case is actually now a soft landing. One of the big bears of Morgan Stanley is actually talking about a soft landing now. But wait a minute, I thought this was a bear piece. It is, because they actually think the S&P 500 is going down from where it is now. Buckle up for how bad this L is going to be. Now, they do think that Europe and the United States will avoid a recession. They think that resulting growth in 2024 and for the rest of 2023 will end up being subpar, leading to basically an L of a recovery, which is basically no recovery. It's kind of like stocks go down and then they just trade sideways. That's in contrast with what a Nike swoosh would kind of look like, which would be something like fall rapidly down, recover, and then in the longer term, you somewhat just keep recovering, right? My thesis is obviously the Nike swoosh. I do think it will be volatile, but I'll boy, the last couple weeks here since the AI craze, it's been anything, it's been just like straight up and less volatility. Uh, but uh, volatility will come back to some extent. Tighter policy is a key driver of this subdued backdrop. Core inflation remains too high. And in our view, it's not necessarily about the Federal Reserve raising hikes again, uh, raising rates in the near term, but rather keeping rates extended for a period as inflation moderates. Now, this is actually, I wrote yes next to this because I've been arguing for, for probably months now, but certainly weeks, that I don't really care where the Federal Reserve stops. What I actually care about is when is the Federal Reserve going to cut? That's the part that matters to me because my thesis is, hey, rather than send these confusing signals to the market where you basically pause in June and then hike in July so you get an extra 25 BP in, why don't you just delay your first 25 BP cut by another month rather than send such confusing signals? So in other words, higher, well, or these levels for longer. So these levels for longer. Uh, now, they do talk about that if the Fed does this, they would actually be raising the real policy rate. And that's true. They would technically be raising rates if rates are stable at 5%, inflation expectations fall, then real rates would rise just by the formula of calculating real rates, which incorporates future inflation expectations. In English, Morgan Stanley's like, oh, they'll keep them high just to keep fighting inflation down. I actually think they'll start cutting but uh, so they can maintain a real policy rate rather than raise. But ignore that part for a moment. That part does not so much matter. That's more of opinion. What we care about is how much, how much is, uh, do the bears think the market's going to fall? Well, that comes up here on the next page. So they do talk about China's recovery uh, re-accelerating. They, they think that potentially the market for China is, uh, is seeing a bottom right now. But uh, here you go. Markets, many market risks appear front-loaded. Oh, this is interesting. The weakest growth is more likely to occur in the near term rather than in the long term. So think about all these different risks they're talking about here. The weakest growth is coming up now. The highest inflation going forward would be now. The tightest policy with the banking crisis and Fed rates, now. The largest shift in the Fed's uh, or central bank balance sheet, yeah, Fed balance sheet, now. In other words, they say it's crunch time now. Now I wrote next to this, yup, gets clear after. Well, that's because I have this belief in the Nike swoosh that quite frankly, 
once we get through some of these near-term catalysts, inflation, is it going to be sticky or not? Uh, and, 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 you know, the banking crisis, uh, the subprime autos disaster, the commercial real estate disaster. We've already got through the debt ceiling. Once we get through some of these near-term disasters, as I wrote here, I believe it gets pretty clear afterwards. In other words, we're, we're really out of negative catalysts. If inflation goes away and the commercial real estate crisis goes away because maybe rates start falling or, or whatever, or maybe offices default, big deal, uh, then you really potentially don't have many catalysts left for negativity. It's hard, in my opinion, to actually validate being bearish right now. Consider for a moment that even in the commercial real estate market, uh, a lot of people are like, oh, but Kevin, you know, Charlie Munger says there are a lot of bad loans and commercial real estate is, is really at risk of dangers. Uh, well, one of the things that uh, I want to actually highlight, yeah, actually, that's what I wanted to go to, is look at this. I pasted this from the Financial Times. So the Financial Times wrote that PacWest last month sold $2.6 billion of construction loans at a loss. Now, that sounds really bad, right? A bank selling $2.6 billion of loans at a loss sounds terrible, right? But what's remarkable is look at this right here. They sold those loans for 92 cents on the dollar. And as soon as they sold those loans for 92 cents on the dollar, which is only a measly 8% haircut, their stock moved up 20%, which the Financial Times argues might lead more banks to want to make these sort of deals. But if there's an appetite to pick up these loans for 92 cents on the dollar, that's barely a discount. So I really, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying hard to find a bear case here, right? So we're looking at this bear argument. And the bear argument, according to Morgan Stanley, is, well, all the leftover catalysts are now. <laughs> yeah, because after that, there aren't that many leftover catalysts that are that negative. And I understand the yield curve is still inverted, and that should be signaling a recession at some point in the future. Fine. Whatever. There was going to be a recession in 2019 as well, and then COVID made that happen. Okay, maybe there'll be another disaster like that. Whatever. So so anyway, uh, they talk about muted returns going forward and how they believe that defensives will actually outperform. Now, we'll talk about that, but first, let's talk about how much they think the market is going to crash. Right after, I remind you to check out the programs on Building Your Wealth link down below, especially the How to Make More Money and Get SH90 Done Faster course featuring artificial intelligence. Those lectures drop at 6 p.m. tomorrow, June 6th at 6 p.m. We'll be dropping all those lectures. They'll be really, really cool. I've been working on those for quite a while with the team, and I think everybody will really enjoy those. So uh, check those out, link down below. At least click the link, go to meetkevin.com down below and see what kind of courses we got there because there's some really good ones. And I really don't believe, uh, or I should say rather, I really do believe that, uh, that, that nobody really continues to add as much value to courses as I do. So I'm very excited about that. Anyway, here's... Uh, here's what Bloomberg reported. So Bloomberg got the full research piece on this. I only got the first two pages. And apparently in the full research piece, Bloomberg reports that Morgan Stanley thinks that there's going to be a 16% profit drop in S&P 500 companies. Now I have a thesis about that. I'm going to talk about that. But Morgan Stanley sees the market at 3,900 at the end of the year. Do you know how much of a miserable drop 3,900 is from where we are now? You remember when the bears are like, we're going down 50%? You remember this, right? Bears say, we're going down 50%. You know how much the bears think the market is going down today? 
Is it 50%? Nope. Could I interest you in negative 40%? No. How about negative 30? Nope. How about negative 20? 15? No. 10? No. The Bears literally now are quite frankly forecasting that by the end of the year, the S&P 500 is going to go down a very, very dramatic and scary 9%. Come on, man. What is this? this like, Morgan Stanley, you know what y'all have just done? Lost the lead. This is ridiculous. That's the most bearish you got? In fact, Bloomberg, I wrote this quote down. Bloomberg literally said that a 16% profit drop, which is different from the 9% SPX target, a 16% profit drop for the SPY, SPY, SPX, same thing, basically, is, quote, one of the most bearish predictions of economists on the market right now. <laughs> it's stupid. Quote, we think the downside risk to earnings is now. While deteriorating liquidity back, the liquidity backdrop is likely to put downward pressure on equity valuations over the next three months, we also see earnings per share disappointment ahead as revenue growth slows and margins further contract. These people are so bearish and they're so negative all the freaking time, and yet their bear thesis gives them a total of a negative 9% from now return for the S&P 500? Bro, the S&P 500 has already returned 12% this year. So even if that happens, the S&P would be up 3% by the end of the year. That's wild. About. Okay, I, I know there'd be a little bit of a math adjustment there. Now, they talk about defensives. So what are defensives generally? Generally, a defensives are going to be your healthcare, consumer staples, and cash. I can get behind cash to some extent, especially after this like AI hype rally. I think it makes sense to have a little bit of cash on the side again, uh, just after some things have really, you know, gotten a little quickly here, uh, and potentially some things are getting a little detached from fundies. But aside from cash, do I really want to move my money into staples right now? No, I've been kind of been bagging on staples and the likelihood of them missing earnings for a while, and now you're starting to see it. Home Depot, Lowe's, Costco, they're not having great results. Maybe a place to actually look could end up being retail because when we were talking about this with course members on Friday. Retail actually has really sold off when you look at the stock market. But retail is a, uh, is a discretionary. That's not a defensive. That's the opposite of a defensive. Uh, retail is a cyclical, which is, again, the opposite of a defensive. Defensives would be, again, like real estate. Uh, you know, utility REITs, cash, healthcare, staples. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and then they do think that commodities will end up continuing to like. So I find it actually widely or wildly encouraging that you could have a company so bearish, yet their bearish forecast is a whole negative 9%. I don't know, Andrew. Maybe y'all need to be a little bit more bearish. Maybe y'all can get out there and, and, and find me a little bit more of a bear thesis. Now, look, I get it. There are a lot of people that are like, but Kevin, we're going to see rates go up higher. Okay, all right. And the market is pricing in too many rate cuts. Okay, let's take a look at exactly what the Fed is pricing in, or, or rather markets are pricing in right now. Uh, so what we could do is we, uh, let's do a couple things here. Let's press this button to begin with. Here you go. 
Right now, there's an 82.7% probability of a uh, pause in June. And then for July, we're actually at a 56.2% chance of a rate bump. Now, I'm not the biggest believer that any of that is a very big deal for the market. I think the market is going to be a little bit more interested in fundies than that. And those are not uh, the scariest fundamentals by any means. So I don't know. I, I really believe the bear argument here is relatively weak. Uh, you, you know, I know people, again, I, I see these comments all over the place about, you know, I, I see the Twitter threads. I see all this nonsense about the, uh, uh, the, the student loan repayment stuff. I don't see the student loan repayment stuff as being a big catalyst. It's so, such a weak catalyst that even the Morgan Stanley bears aren't talking about it. Uh, and that's, again, in part because expectations are the student loan pause would really only affect consumer uh, GDP by maybe a tenth of a percent. Uh, that's that's nothing to care about here. Uh, I mean, really, it's, it's like, who cares? Uh, I, I mean, sure, we could try to we could try to flip around and, and see if we can get some kind of bear case on uh, these student loan repayments. I'm trying to see if I could find one here really quick. Yeah, here's the J.P. Morgan case on uh, on student loans. Ready for this? Like, let me actually show. Rather than these these trash Twitter threads, uh, I shouldn't be so negative. Okay, some Twitter threads are good. But, oh my gosh, the amount of Twitter threads that are just devoid of valid context just makes me angry. <laughs> but it actually, I think, gives me the opportunity to, to speak, hopefully, in an educated manner here. I try my best. I really do. We really try our best every single day to, to bring great perspective here. But let's look at some reality, okay, here, here uh, of, of some, like, real estimates rather than just people hypothecating on Twitter. Here's at least... A financial estimate. And I'm not suggesting these economists know what they're talking about. I mean, just just to be clear, look at this little note here. I wrote, as I was reading about this, I saw a headline that UBS uh, is still forecasting. It wasn't actually a headline. It was, uh, it was, I was listening to Bloomberg, and this was a senior economist at UBS. And he's like, yep, recession Q3. And the lady's looking at him like, really? You realize Q3 is like a month away? And there's no indication we're going into recession. You you recognize that, right? Remember, April, May, June is Q2. We are three weeks away from Q3. UBS says the recession is three weeks away. That's it. There's the title of the video. Recession three weeks away. It's complete garbage. Nonsense. There, there is no recession three weeks away. But anyway, let's go to uh, the JPM piece here on the student loan. Da, 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 da. Student loans, student loans, U.S. prospects. Here it is. This was at least an educated argument, uh, so I, I can get behind this. So student loan debt repayments are going to recur, uh, recur 60 days after June 30th. And so that means payments are going to resume at the end of August. That is within Q3, in fairness. Uh, the uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis believes that this could have an impact of around 0.2 percentage points on uh, consumer savings. And uh, then here you have potentially a lowering of GDP by around 0.1%. However, they did give a slight warning about the student loans, and I'll give them this. They did suggest that most of the impact could end up being front-loaded 
So what this really means is that it, it, you might almost hit the market with a little bit of a shock that, uh, that oh, you have to go back to making those student loan payments. And so you could see a sudden uh, 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 sh pause in spending, so to speak, versus the reality of this being basically nothing. I mean, if GDP is, what's the Atlanta Fed now? Let's see, Atlanta Fed now, real GDP forecast. It should be like 2.6% or something like that. GDP now forecast, oh, 2%. Oh, that's actually ticked down a little bit. So uh, you've got a tick down in the GDP forecast now to, yep, 2%. I'll show you this right here. Here's the Atlanta Fed GDP estimate, 2% for June 1. That is actually a tick down, but again, consider 0.1%. Are we really even going to notice that in any direction? Unlikely. Is it possible, again, that, that if it's front-loaded, maybe it's more of like a 0.4% impact? Yeah, that'd be a little bit more noticeable, but at, at least we do still have some room here, which is nice. So yeah, of course, there's always a risk with everything, but I suppose my belief is that, you know, this is just another sort of bear thesis that's being thrown forward about like, oh, that's it, you know, here it comes. Uh, and then you also have to wonder, like, what kind of consumer does this affect more? And, well, here you go. The beneficiaries of this student loan forbearance program are likely to be young people who have a l higher marginal propensity to consume rather than older households. In other words, they spend all their money because they don't invest. About 20% of the outstanding student loan balance is for those between 18 to 29 years old. This makes student loans the largest form of debt for this group compared to other forms uh, in, in other households like credit cards, uh, auto loans, in other words. Hence, we think assuming a relatively large multiplier with a more immediate impact after the forbearance end date is reasonable, uh, especially amongst wherever you think those 18 to 29 year olds are spending. So where do we think 18 to 29 year olds are spending? Well, they're probably, not many of them are probably spending money on Teslas. Probably more of that money, I, I, I would guess, would be going into some form of either travel, uh, entertainment, hotels, restaurants. Uh, you know, I, I doubt many of them are buying Enphase products, NVIDIA products, uh, Tesla products. Uh, may, may, maybe Apple, maybe. Uh, who knows, right? So it's, it's an, it's, Something to think about, but again, it'll probably smooth out to being something more like a nothing burger. So I'm not very negative on the student loan issue. Now, uh, if you look at the world interest rate probability, I enjoy looking at this. This gives us another look at sort of the Fed. And uh, I love the forecasts here because they give us a little bit of a, an idea of, okay, well, like, how bearish is the Fed right now? And uh, when it comes to or the market on behalf of the Fed, I should say. This is the world interest rate probability chart right now. It looks like uh, that peak is being priced in right now for July. Uh, and you price in the first potential cut as early as September. But uh, certainly you're pricing in cuts uh, to uh, back down to uh, the 5% range uh, by December. That could all be one cut, by the way. And uh, then you're looking at your second to third cut over here in January. So, uh, and, and that does not necessarily mean the economy is going into a recession. This just simply means the Fed's going to follow real rates down as inflation expectations rotate down. So I guess the long and short of this piece is Morgan Stanley and UBS are bears. Their bear arguments are relatively weak. 
yeah, we could try to stretch the explanation that maybe uh, you've got uh, uh, these, this student loan segment that's going to hurt some people in, in August and September. Well, it'd be the end of August, so more realistically, September, October. Yeah, that is when people are forecasting a recession. Is that alone going to be what does it? No, but we'll see. Personally, I think it's just more bearish news and nonsense, and I, I don't really think the bears have a lot going for them right now. But yeah, I guess nobody can fault me for being clear about my opinions. And hey, if some real bearish news comes out, I'll be the first to flip-flop because nobody knows how to flip-flop better than meet Kevin. But that's a good thing. I think that's, that's you know, we, when the data changes, we change our opinion. All right, so let's listen to Doomburger. I'm curious what the main issues of contention are. My sense is it's inflation, how sticky it is, how high the Fed can go, how significant the bank lending uh, tightening will be, and how long consumers can keep spending as though YOLO is really the remaining feeling of the day. Yeah, and I'll add to that whether or not there's going to be a recession. I mean, you know, there has been a real, um, I think, you know, herd mentality among economists. I confess to being among them simply because when the Fed raises rates, historically, we get a recession. I've been joking that you'd like to say that, you know, the horror movie ends a different way. <laughs> but usually, you know, the seventh installment of Halloween ends the same way that the other six installments <laughs> did. So, you know, we have the Fed aggressively raising rates. I've been in the camp that that will eventually give us a recession. But I think that is one of the core disconnects. And you're seeing, I think, right now a real groundswell of hope that there's going to be a soft landing. Hope that Halloween will end a different way. Yeah. The Fed, meanwhile, <laughs> is in its blackout period uh, ahead of the June 14th meeting. Bank of America's Michael Gapin weighing in on the Fed's path forward, writing, quote, the May jobs report is a particularly difficult one for the Fed to parse. Coming out of the May meeting, we argued that the Fed was inclined to stay on hold in June and the onus would be on the hawks to justify a hike. We think the May jobs report is just soft enough to justify a hold, but perhaps not just uh, soft enough to justify staying on hold for a long period of time. Michael Gapin, U.S. economist at Bank of America Securities, joins the table of economists here. So can you give us a sense of what the threshold is now for them to stay on hold? Well, I think you need to see some material softening in, in the data. I think they've certainly communicated they'd prefer to skip. And yes, I think that there was enough mixed messages in the employment report where they could do that if they if they want to. Personally, I think the establishment report still gives the better signal. There's probably some sampling error in that household survey. But there's resilience in the labor market, as you mentioned, the resilience in the consumer, as you mentioned, and some stickiness in inflation. And if the risk backdrop is diminishing and bank stress is more or less in stasis, then their communication should shift back in, in the direction of, of pushing the policy rate higher. That's probably the debate that, that they will be having next week. And I know that Laura is going to uh, jump in here with a number of questions, but I'm curious how high they can go, whether the market is accurately reflecting that perhaps it's another quarter basis point hike, but it's not going to be that significant. It's not going to materially change the outlook in terms of the benchmark for the Fed. Well, I do think in, in back in March, before we had the bank stress pop up, I do think that they were going to guide markets to 5.4 or 5.6 on the terminal. That's probably the direction we're going back to. I, could we get to six or above? You know, yeah, it's possible, but I, I think somewhere between here and and say five seventy-five to six will be sufficiently restrictive. Certainly, we are seeing evidence that past hikes are working on at least parts of the economy, and so I'm not convinced that they need to kind of really ramp things back up. But yes, we're essentially saying 
if some of the bank stress and other issues have dissipated, then the Fed should fill that gap. Two or three months ago, they thought that gap would be somewhere around five and a half, maybe a little above. I think that still holds. I think something that has really been unique about this cycle clearly is inflation. And the disinflationary process is happening, but I like to say it's a lot easier to get from 9% down to 5% than from 5% right. back to 2%. Right. And I think one of the things that really has come out of the recent tsunami of FedSpeak is markets pricing out the rate cuts. And I, you know, this is really looking around the corner right now. But when you think about the Fed rate hike cycle kind of winding down clearly as it ends, I feel like markets rush to price in the next leg down in the Fed funds rate. To me, this is looking like it would be a very different process. It wouldn't be the elevator down that they usually take with rates. Correct, Do right. you have any thoughts about how that could evolve? Well, I think that's right. So in some the balance leaves between the how high and the how long. I think you know the, both of that is is in this discussion. And I, I think you're right that maybe markets didn't baseline expect cuts this year, but in distributions of outcomes, you had to put a lot more weight on that hard landing. And if the external risk backdrop is improving, those cuts come out as as a result. Um, so yes, I, I think if if you're not, you know, if they're looking to kind of fine tune where the policy stance is, some of that is the the how long. And I think markets have done it correctly in the sense of first you price out those cuts, we'll debate on on how high things go. So the cycle could be a little different one where where the where you're right that getting inflation down to the mid fours has been relatively easy. They've gotten help from other spaces. How we get that down to two is still in front of us. So do you think that good news is still good news, as Peter Shea was saying? <sighs> no, I think good news is back to being bad news. Because good, good news, what? if you include the risk backdrop, meaning less risk, then you, you should. This is so confusing. I, I Like, whatever, man. Whatever. Whatever. Yeah, rates aren't going to elevate her down. Who cares? Like, frankly, it doesn't matter. If the Fed reduces rates slowly, which if inflation, like if you get an elevator down in rates, you either broke something or you're in recession. If you get a slow decline in rates, you're slowly bleeding out inflation. As long as the economy is still kicking, I don't know that that's such a bad thing. Um, yeah, whatever. So... Um, I guess briefly we can jump on over into, uh, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I want to just give a little bit of a look into what's going on with good old Binance. Back at it again. Back in the news once again. Now, the good old uh, esteemed CZ is apparently considering selling out of at least a lot of his ownership of Binance. How convenient. Right as all the vultures of regulators are coming in and circling around the rat that is CZ, all of a sudden, CZ wants to get out. What a surprise. What a horrible surprise. Actually, it's not really a surprise at all. Now, obviously, Binance survived uh, last year's insanity and madness, uh, which other crypto brokerages did not. A lot of them went uh, went down. But a lot of folks have been asking, hey, Kevin, why recently has it seemed like the stock market has been doing so well and uh, Bitcoin has not? Uh, it's returned pretty decently year to date. Uh, we're at 26,700 right now, up from that 16,000 level. Uh, but but why has it felt like it's been sort of bleeding out in the last few weeks as the stock market's been rallying on AI and otherwise? 
Yet a lot of folks believe that this has to do with lower trading volumes at Binance as potentially, well, the regulators are coming in. Not only is it likely that the regulators are coming in, but there's a uh, pretty big piece in Reuters that just came out uh, a couple hours ago uh, touching on how Binance potentially through their Binance.us arm operated bank accounts here that they weren't supposed to and utilized loopholes to basically have direct control of customer cash, which would be big, big no-nos uh, for a company like Binance. On top of that, you've got plenty of arguments right now being made that basically CZ's getting ready to, uh, well, let's just say, make a run for it. And uh, this is not a surprise. We've seen this CZ guy, uh, supposed founder and majority owner of Binance, uh, refuse to come to the United States for fears of being arrested. Super sketchy interviews he's had on CNBC alleging that, oh, don't worry, our assets get audited. We're good. And then it's like, well, what about your liabilities? Nope, we don't audit our liabilities. Don't worry, though. Our assets are great. And then, of course, they make this argument that all of our coins are backed by cash. But then what has secretly come out is that you're using the same basket of cash to back multiple different tokens. So it's like, yes, if one token withdrew all of its money and needed all the cash backing it, that would work. But then that would leave all of the other tokens not backed by cash because you're multi-counting. And because you're multi-counting is exactly why you don't want to audit your actual full company. Because your proof of reserves audits, which are just single glimpses of asset checks. First of all, your auditor quit because y'all are probably a blatant fraud. Uh, and second of all, people are like, uh, nobody believes these reports anymore. Anyway, anyway, I'm obviously pretty bearish on this guy. And so now, apparently, look at this. Binance's regulatory woes pave path for CZ's heir apparent. In other words, because the regulators are coming in, CZ wants to dump out of Binance and pick somebody else to run the company. Now, of course, they'll spin the narrative and be like, oh, we want to show that we're turning a new leaf. But really what it is, is CZ's going to make off with billies. And uh, yeah, anyway, let's see what we got here. In mid-May, cryptocurrency exchange Binance got some bad news in the far-flung corner of the sprawling universe. Binance payments partners were cut off in Australia. We saw a lot of this cutting off in, uh, by other banks as well. Binance is really losing a lot of its on and off ramps. Uh, and so now you've got someone new, this guy, Richard Tang. Oh, uh oh, hold on, hold on a sec there, Bloomberg. There we go. Richard Tang. This guy might end up being the front runner to take over as CEO. And uh, this is being speculated on specifically because of the regulation that's circling around basically Zhao's home over in Dubai. And even though they're trying to take this argument of, hey, we're a tech company, you know, we move fast and break things. In the finance space, you have to be really, really careful. And so they're trying to basically put this new figurehead in to try to show or prove that this is a reputable company and that they're willing to work with compliance authorities. Now, apparently, uh, what's, what's wild is that according to the Financial Times in another piece over here, uh, Binance, which the Financial Times says has no headquarters at all, controlled 57.5% of the average volume of the world's crypto exchanges at its peak in February. Now they control about 43%. That's still a lot. 
but I remember one of the moments we actually just recently popped to a new high at uh, at Bitcoin, I think where it was right around 30,000, was when Binance decided to move uh, money they had, about a billion dollars they had in stable coins into Bitcoin. Uh, and, and, and so you, it, at one point, the Financial Times in a separate piece had also argued that Binance controls 80% of all Bitcoin transactions, which is also pretty remarkable. Uh, you've got uh, CFTC lawsuits against Binance. And actually, I think I have the piece the Financial Times based this off of right here. This is Morgan uh, Morgan Stanley. <laughs> you know, I don't really love Morgan Stanley. I remember talking about this when, when we reviewed this last time as well. But they talk about Bitcoin. Uh, here it is. 81% of BTC traded on exchanges in February was traded on only one exchange, Binance. Our conclusion is that traders on Binance now set the daily price for BTC. I don't disagree with Morgan Stanley on this. Now, I disagree with a lot of things, but I don't disagree with this at all. And they also talk about how uh, stablecoin market caps have actually, with the exception of Tether, fallen on average about 16%. Uh, and so some some softness happening here in, in the crypto space. You know, the meme coin game is still alive and well, but something to pay attention to because a lot of the regulators are swarming in now or as, as they quite frankly should, on stable coins. Mostly because, and I've made this argument for, for years, that I believe that stable coins are inherently unstable. And that, that's why they offer these larger yields, because we, we, we don't know how many times this money is rehypothecated and who owns, you know, the debt. Unfortunately, the problem was, you know, I thought stable coins might collapse, but brokerages would survive. The opposite happened, right? A lot of the brokerages fell and some of the stable coins actually survived. Although we did see some, some pretty pretty big blowups. Uh, with with all this said, the Rolling, uh, Rolling Stone magazine actually just put out a big piece on uh, CZ. I think it's worth looking at. Let's take a look at what the Rolling Stone has to say. So uh, crypto's richest man is waiting out the chaos. CZ has always avoided the spotlight, but after SBF's extraordinary fall, all eyes are on the on crypto's mysterious kingpin. Uh, and, and so I, I went through this article already. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to read this whole thing because it is it is quite extensive. But uh, I did highlight a section here that I thought was interesting. Uh, Binance has been hit with this lawsuit by the CFTC uh, in March alleging a massive scheme to intentionally evade U.S. laws. And it's worth bringing this up. I actually have the CFTC lawsuit. It is, right, yeah, it's a 74-page lawsuit. It's actually right here. One of the things that you find that Binance, according to the CFTC, was really good at was basically allowing, teaching people how to set up VPNs to bypass laws to be able to invest in Binance from jurisdictions they're not supposed to, whether that was mainland China or the United States or, or otherwise. And uh, they basically call Binance's compliance programs ineffective. And they have a pretty thorough case here and make some pretty strong allegations against Binance. Uh, it, for example here, Binance intentionally tried to hide the scope of its compliance program ineffectiveness from its business 
partners. At one point, Binance purposefully engaged another compliance auditor that would, quote, just do a half-assed individual sub-audit on geofencing to buy us more time. And I think that's kind of been the thesis here of BZ. It's like, or, or <laughs> BZ, CZ, uh, and Binance is like, let's just keep kicking the can down the road until we're fully flushed out. Uh, in fact, you even have CZ here replying. Uh, I think it was CZ. Let's see here. Uh, Lim, who was aware that Binance did not have a board of directors, nevertheless assured her, yeah, it's fine. I can get management to sign off on the fake report. Around the same time as the referenced half-assed compliance audit in November, uh, an individual explained, uh, okay, so not CZ, an individual exclaimed to Lim in the chat, I has no confidence in our geofencing. They also talk about Hamas transactions being facilitated, like buying AKs, uh, uh, you know, and, and basically laundering money on Binance and how basically uh, Binance just closes their eyes to questionable services. Like, for example, they would, they would teach people when they were associated with questionable purposes to, quote, come back with a new account. This current one has to go. It's tainted. <laughs> yeah, it's tainted. <laughs> uh, you know? So anyway, but that's because uh, off-boarding is viewed as bad in CZ's eyes. In other words, we don't want to see terrorists leave Binance because that's going to lower our numbers. It, it's really kind of like one of the most disgusting companies that I think could possibly exist that still exists. And that's not to say that others were any better. I mean, we've already seen there have been blatant frauds, rug pulls in crypto, brokerage frauds. There's been so much fraud in crypto. It's been disgusting. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel embarrassed that at one point, uh, I, I thought, you know, even 3% of a portfolio going to crypto was remotely reasonable. Obviously, that's not like personalized advice for people, but I, you know, I, I was never a big like, oh, all in crypto or whatever. But I mean, some of these things are just, it's just crazy how, how this organization still exists. But anyway, uh, let's see here. Forbes had an expose on CZ. Fine. Okay, we already know that. I want to go to, there was another section here that Rolling Stone had. So they talk a little bit about how basically he can live nowhere but anywhere. Binance's role in evading regulators, moving assets for criminals and sanctions evaders, and hiding basic financial information. There's actually talk about people using Binance to bribe Russians during this whole Russian and Russia and Ukraine disaster, uh, which is not great either. Murky divide between Binance and Binance US is part of what has regulators worried. Well, they're probably, if it's anything like FTX, they're probably really one and the same. Uh, and I think that's why they're getting sued by, you know, the SEC and the uh, CFTC. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, what CZ, in fairness to them, what they're trying to do is they're trying to set up this idea that, hey, they're going to focus more on compliance. And they're just going to say that anybody who says anything negative about them is just fudding or fake news or whatever. Fine. Okay, whatever. Everything I'm saying is just my opinion. Whatever. Uh, who cares? So uh, anyway, there are some really red flags. When you look at Binance, like if, if you buy on Binance, I, I would just be a big fan of taking my money off the exchange, you know, not your keys, not your crypto, right? But anyway, I think it's very interesting that they want to focus so heavily on compliance. This is what CZ tweeted at the beginning of the year. And I think this is consistent with their, their move of really trying to get a new CEO because CZ is tainted. 
So what they're trying to do is they're trying to get uh, this new guy, Richard Tang, to basically be this fill-in with a cute resume that uh, that could oversee Binance and hopefully get them to be regulated. I have to say, Kevin O'Leary in my interview with him had a really great point, and and he suggested that. Binance is likely to continue to get squeezed into jurisdictions that aren't regulating them. And they're going to see the, ju the, the jurisdictional pressure come from all angles until they're really only able to operate in very, very few areas. But even those few leftover areas will eventually squeeze them uh, out until they're either forced to comply or go bankrupt. He had a very great argument. Just type into YouTube, meet Kevin, Kevin O'Leary, uh, and, uh, and, and, and you'll see it. I thought he had a really great argument. Uh, and I think so far that's playing out to be true. So uh, I think if it is true that Binance is controlling about 81%, uh, at least as of February, of Bitcoin volumes, in case you're wondering why Bitcoin is falling, I think the frank bottom line is because Binance is starting to falter. And the more BTC falls, the more, in my opinion, it's actually evidence of BTC faltering. Uh, or sorry, not of BTC faltering, of Binance faltering. Uh, and the more you see pain at Binance, the more, in my opinion, you'll end up seeing pain in Bitcoin, at least until the issues resolve themselves. So we'll see. But that's just my take. Alrighty, next up. Binance, Binance, Binance. Oh, you silly folks, you. You you silly tricksters. All right, uh, let's take a look at the pre-market here. We haven't looked at the pre-market. Is Binance US saver? I wouldn't touch anything called Binance with a 10-foot pole. I don't care what the domain ending is. Uh, you know, even before the FTX collapse, what, for like a week or 10 days or even more, I'm like, get out of, it was so crazy. I'm like, get out of FTX. I'm like screaming it. And people are like, what are you doing, Kevin? You're, you're fudding. You're just fudding. Like, FTX US is safe. It's the international version that's having problems. I'm like, they're lying to you. Get out. Those videos are still up. You could literally still find those videos. Uh, or I'm like, get out. It's going to collapse. And uh, then sure enough, both collapsed. It was all a big fraud, which is disgusting and terrible. And, and uh, it's crazy. I mean, uh, you know... <laughs> I just think of like, I can never get this image out of my head of like referees in, in, in the NFL wearing FTX ads. I mean, FTX ads were everywhere. It was ubiquitous. Everybody was fooled. It's crazy. Anyway, let's take a quick, at the, quick look at the pre-market. So what do we got in the pre-market here? Ford, Ford up 2.7%, Build-A-Bear up 3%, boring. Dropbox up a couple percent. Tesla's up one point. Wow, 217 for Tesla. Okay, Dave and Buster's up 1.7 here. Cool. Uh, what do we got towards the downside? Cloudflare drops 4.2%. Not ideal. EXPI down 4%. Well, those real estate transactions are still going to hurt. Been out of that one for a while. C3AI dropping another 3% as it should. I think that one's a fraud. That's the next one in the making. 2.8% Airbnb. My opinion. Don't sue me, bro. But, you know, you have a right to have an opinion. Uh, open door uh, down 2%. Hate the company. I actually think that this is probably uh, a more realistic place for it to be, though. It, when it was around 130, it was so undervalued. Uh, NVIDIA is actually down 
3-ish percent as well. Coinbase down 1.6. Bill.com. Wow, Bill.com is $106? Are you kidding me? Oh my gosh, I initiated a position on Bill.com at 78 bucks. I'm like, this thing's trading for a lower sales revenue multiple and it's about to go profitable. I didn't think it would rally that much. 106.5 divided by 78. Dude, 36.5% on Bill? Wow. That's crazy. That's a crazy number. Whoa, look at Trade Desk. $73. It's also pushing a little bit. Wow. Oh. Oh. Things are getting a little 2021-ish again. Crazy. Intel's down about a third of a percent. Intel's like always down. Yeah, Shopify. What's Shopify trading for these days? Fifty-eight bucks. Robinhood's at nine bucks. All right. Okay. Let's let. Oh, look! It's Mohammed. Let's listen to Mohammed. You're gonna have to hike in July. You might as well hike now. Let me go back to your your premise of this muddled middle and the idea that at some point uh, the Federal Reserve may have to say, you know what, uh, this two percent goal line. We, we're, we're moving the goalposts. What do you think the chances of that happening really are? So the chances of them talking publicly about it and doing it is very, very low. The Fed has lost a lot of credibility. The last thing it wants right now is to risk more of its credibility. What yes. they should be doing is studying it inside, seeing whether the case, which is based on the supply side of the economy, not the demand side, the supply side, on changing globalization, on the rewiring of supply chains by companies, on the functioning right. of the labor market, whether that case is strong, which I believe it is. And then what they do is slowly guide the market by having the 2% pushed out and then seeing whether the market can adjust to a stable 3 to 4% inflation, which I think right. it can. Are you yeah. now in the camp that we are in some kind of bull market or do you think that this is a, uh, a head fake? No, I, I think given that we've lifted two major concerns, the debt ceiling and more importantly, the spread of the banking tremors, given that the labor market remains strong, what the market is doing, and you've heard me say this for weeks, I think is appropriate. But there are things that we don't know yet. And the big issue is the Fed. If the Fed goes after its 2% target because it's convinced it's the right target, then there will be lots of headwinds to this economy. If the Fed, yeah. however, acknowledges that 2% is the wrong target, then the yeah, market is right. fairly priced. Do you have a takeaway from what Saudi Arabia did over the weekend um, in regard to whether this is, we were talking to Brian Sullivan earlier, he has an argument that this is political uh, between the US, uh, Saudi and Russia, frankly. Or do you think that they know something that we don't? I'm gonna respond to this, but I, I don't agree with all this. About which way the economy is headed. So my take is a lot simpler than Brian. They've got, according to the IMF, an $80 break-even. They need to get to the price to $80 to break-even. Other countries are neither willing yeah. or able to join them in a cut, and therefore they've gone forward on their own. But keep an eye on the break-even price for Saudi Arabia, because they've got lots of things going on internally that they don't want to derail. Fair enough. Mohammed, uh, always smart analysis. We appreciate you joining us on this Monday morning. Look forward to talking. You know, I, I actually want to start with that oil argument quickly. That's actually interesting. Uh, I, I had not gotten a recent update on the uh, oil break-evens. 
Uh, I thought they were actually lower than that. I thought they were closer to $60. So the fact that oil break-evens are 80 bucks and, uh, you know, OPEC and Saudi Arabia have been, like, screaming. They're, they're just like, we, we, we're going short oil for, I want to say, for about a, the last month. They've been shouting, we're going short oil. We're going to have another production cut. It's coming. Get ready. And the market generally has been like, nah. This makes sense that they're trying to push oil to 80 bucks, and they're actually having trouble getting it there. International blend at 78 bucks right now. Western blend at 73.68. Now, with that out of the way, I'd like to be very clear about the Federal Reserve. First of all, I agree with Mohamed Olarian when he suggests that the Federal Reserve has a real credibility risk if they go for pause and then hike again. Absolutely. It is substantially substantially too confusing of a messaging uh, apparatus to suggest, oh yeah, uh, we will pause and then we will hike again. That is not going to be seen as, oh, we analyzed more data, therefore the data suggests, oh, we need to hike more. Uh, that's going to be seen as, y'all don't know what the F you're doing, y'all suck. And it's just going to cause more problems. So I think that's a really big mistake. And, and I agree with uh, Alarian that you would be better off just stopping uh, at, uh, at this level or giving another 25 now in June, which they're not going to do. In fact, Bloomberg just ran a piece, which I'm actually thankful that they did because I, I know Jay Powell sits there and reads this crap. Uh, Fed skip a hike strategy is sensible but risky and confusing. Uh, they're talking about how basically June is shaping up to be the uh, trickiest of the 15-month campaign to uh, temper inflation, how the June 13th to 14th meeting will be really fascinating because basically if they do pause, they're going to have to talk the economy down. They'll have to talk dirty to us, and they'll have to talk dirty to us because if they talk nicely to us, the market's just going to like literally skyrocket. And that could actually create inflation in the first place if people then go out and start spending like crazy again and borrowing like crazy again. So there's a little bit of a risk there. So the messaging is going to be a really big deal, but it's all going to be confusing if they message, oh yeah, we might hike again in the future or whatever. In my opinion, it's complete nonsense. They're not going to hike again in the future. I think they're just straight up lying. I think the whole idea of, oh, we might hike again in the future is basically their way of saying, no kids, we may have paused and it may look like it's recess, but don't get too excited. And then everybody just like runs over the teacher and, you know, goes and parties and schools out for summer, you know, starts playing or whatever. <laughs> so, so on, on that hand, I agree. But on this, this idea that the Fed should raise their inflation target is not necessary. I, 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 if you've watched this channel for a while, you already know that the Federal Reserve does not have to do that. Uh, and it's really frustrating that it seems like everybody has forgotten about this, this policy that they came out with in 2019. And uh, what I think is so great is bringing it up because nobody talks about it. And the Fed's going to do it. They're going to mention this. And then the whole market's going to go, oh, damn. I forgot about that. That's bullish. It's called flexible average inflation targeting. 
Here's a breakdown by the Cleveland Fed. Listen to some of this. This commentary examines the response of longer run inflation expectations to the FOMC's switch to flexible average inflation targeting regime. The data indicate an upward shift in the lower end, below 2% of the distribution of inflation expectations and stronger anchoring around 2%. To provide context, blah, 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 blah. Okay, basically, uh, this, this idea is that from 2012 on, uh, the 2% objective for PCE was recognized as achievable, but we constantly undershot it. And because we undershot it, the idea was, okay, well, maybe should we reduce inflation expectations or, or, or you know, our target? Should we reduce it to about 1.75 or should we stick with 2%? And the Fed came out with fate to say, hey, look, as long as over the longer term, we're basically at a policy rate of 2% averaged over, let's say, a decade backwards, a decade forward, then all is good then basically we just need to make sure we average 2% of the long term. And frankly, you could run at 25 to 3% for the next few years and still end up averaging 2% over the last 25 years, even if you run at 25 to 3% inflation until 2027. So I think once they reveal that they're focused on fade again and they're not focused on oh, we're going to, you know, end up sitting at, uh, we're going to revise the inflation target up like Mohamed Alarian suggested. I don't even think that's necessary. He's like, oh, if they don't do that, then that's going to be bad for markets. No, because all they have to do is pull out fate. Uh, let's take a look at this one. Here's another piece, actually. What is this? We've got, uh, eh, well, well, some of the predictions, unfortunately, are, are a little skewed because inflation ended up being so high in 2022. Uh, but uh, what you can do is, what I like to do is I like to, I've done this before. I'll just give you the bottom line. I like to just take a spreadsheet and I go all the way back to 2000 and I just plot what inflation was from 2000 all the way to 2023 now. And then you just project forward, project forward going like 2028 to 2040 and go, you know, 2%. And then just take slices of different segments and have inflation be, you know, uh, 6% this year, have it uh, be uh, 3% next year, 3% the year after that, that would put us at 2025. Uh, then you get to maybe two and a half and two and a half and 26 and seven, and then go to 2%. When you average it, it's not that big of a deal. So I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong and the Fed's buried this whole idea about flexible average inflation targeting. I just don't see it. I'm, again, maybe that's the optimist speaking, but uh, I'm, I'm really surprised so few people talk about it. So, and usually when that happens, like if few people are talking about it, at least I feel like somewhat corroborated. But when nobody's talking about it, I'm like, I'm either onto something that nobody else is or I'm wrong. <laughs> I know I'm leaning towards the, I feel like I'm onto something that nobody else is. And I've been kicking and screaming fate for literally a year and a half. Uh, <laughs> so like that's the end game and it's really good for stocks. Anyway, you have their, their store brand and it, they've rolled that thing back very big. Now the store brand happens to be quite good. I, I'm not a snob on store brands. Isn't that oh. great at a time where we're adding a few hundred thousand jobs a month. 
I think that Walmart's having. The, I think Walmart goes right to 170. I think it's very strong. I think Costco breaks out here after really kind of a muddled situation where Rich Glanty was calling everybody. Says you got to roll back prices. We're rolling back prices. You roll back prices. And there's like a very funny moment where some analyst is saying, "How can you get away with that?" And he says something. Well, you know, well, we do have 240 billion dollars that we buy. <laughs> I, you know, we have sales and. Uh, yes, there is a price war going on at Costco. They are focused on reducing prices. In fact, they specifically say in their earnings call, we would rather cut prices and sell more stuff than sell less stuff. So no inflation. It's almost twice the size of everything that you've seen before in the past eight months. So just put that in the back of your mind. To me, that creates the floor. That creates the near-term floor in this market because he's bought himself a call option, the ability to roll this cut forward, forward, forward. Coming into this, there were three dreams. The economic dream of Saudi Arabia, the war that Russia is lording over Ukraine, and third, the Emiratis wanted a higher production target. We've just worked it out. You gave up a million barrels a day for a month on a rolling basis, two and a quarter billion dollars. The dream suffers. It matters to keep this floor in place, and perhaps the upside can be retested if the Chinese reopening is delivered. But we have a global manufacturer. Oh my gosh, you gotta be kidding me. Really? If the Chinese reopening is delivered? Is this supposed to be like straight up FUD by, by Bloomberg? Now don't get me wrong, I'll eat up some FUD when it's realistic because it gives me something to talk about. But are you seriously suggesting the China reopening is really gonna drive up oil prices again? That was the December argument that I pooped on. So badly I pooped on it. And it didn't end up pushing up oil prices. What, and now all of a sudden it's supposed to come? What are these people smoking, man? Jeez, I I don't know. I, I just, it's frustrating. I just, it's just not that bad. Uh, now am I gonna, am I here to say Nvidia's gonna double in the next three months? No, so we wanna be clear. This isn't suggesting everything's going moon euphoric. Uh, I think NVIDIA is a great company. Some concerns about its valuation here in the short term because we've just priced in so much going forward. Could end up being a great company in the long term. If they keep this market share up, could end up being very great. But um, but yeah, I mean, some some of these, these uh, you know, on one hand, some of the bull arguments are a little wild and some of the bear arguments are a little wild. But I guess that's a fair way, I suppose, to look at the market. All right. I think it's time for more coffee and go into the course member live stream. I don't know. Does anybody have a question? Is there anything else to cover? Uh, as you know, my favorite uh, platform right here is Weeble. You can go to metkevin.com slash free to get yourself 12 free stocks. You can also uh, sign up for StreamYard, which is how I bring you these live streams. So if you like, uh, want to stream or you want to even record videos while being able to throw up banners or overlays, like there's StreamYard, but I, I've got some better overlays. I'll throw up some other ones. Uh, you want to throw up some overlays or some of the other things I've thrown up in the past, uh, check out StreamYard. Go to metkevin.com slash StreamYard. Uh, the other thing that you could do is get life insurance in as little as five minutes by going to metkevin.com slash life. Check that all out. Any last-minute questions we got here? Throw up comments. Smash. Yeah, I'm getting vibes. What? No, alien vibes. Nah. Target got downgraded because analysts think that student loan repayments may affect consumer behavior. Well, like, you know, like we mentioned earlier, I think that the place that you would expect to see some consumer pain would be in that 20 to 30-year-old sector, travel, entertainment, retail. I, I could see that. 
Although Target lately is going through a little bit of oopsie doopsie because, uh, you know, some of their political uh, faux pas, let's just call them. Uh, but yeah, hey, you know, fingers crossed on a great day here on Tesla. Look at that, up 1.7% in the pre-market. It's pretty exciting. And uh, I think now I'm going to go make coffee. And what's the due date for the twins? Ooh, good question. I'm expecting twin. Honestly, I have no idea what the due date is. Uh, I think it's November. Uh, but uh, the problem with twins is whatever the due date is, we just don't really care about it because we're kind of like, they're going to be early. So I'm pretty sure our expectation is Halloween babies. Uh, yeah, that's going to be really scary. <sighs> so we'll see. But yeah, that'll be cool. Ah, that's interesting on the Swedes. Avoid preemie. I think every twin is a preemie. That's not really a choice that you really have. Uh, anyway. I'm gonna go now. Um, yeah. Thank you for hanging out. It's always a pleasure. Appreciate it. I actually really get fulfillment out of doing these. I, I love ranting here. I honestly feel honored that thousands of you come here to listen to me rant. I think I do an okay job, and I want to do better. So leave me a comment. How, how can I improve? Uh, I, I'd love to know. So feel free to suggest anything in the comments. I'm open to, to feedback, uh, reasonable feedback, and uh, we'll see you in the next one. Thanks.